the Song of Solomon, chapter 2. The Song of Solomon is, uh, of course, quite difficult to interpret. You can read it on a fairly simplistic level as pointing forward to the, the romance between the Lord Jesus Christ, represented by Solomon, and this Gentile girl that he's got this relationship with. And there are a couple of allusions in the New Testament to the Song of Solomon, which would, uh, I guess, encourage us to do that, particularly the idea that um, the, the girl is seen by Solomon as without spot. And that is picked up and quoted in the New Testament about the Bride of Christ. And so, yes, you can try to make a, a case that the, uh, the Song of Solomon is this wonderful picture of the Lord Jesus in love with this Gentile girl. And I don't doubt that uh, you can in places see that coming through. But that to me is not a particularly satisfactory interpretation of, of the whole song. For one thing, the whole romance is so secret, it's so secretive, and there's all this conflict and tension between the girl and the daughters of Jerusalem. You then have the fact that, right in the historical record in, in Kings, the point is made that Solomon got involved with these Gentile women when he was quite a young man, and in the end they turned his heart away from God then the whole song seems to be based around uh, uh, tension, I would say, wanting to meet but not being able to, to meet the girl, wanting him to come back and uh, be with her in her mother's house back in Egypt, uh, and uh, their fears about being sort of busted for having these secret meetings they have out in the countryside. And we might expect the romance to develop in a classical sort of sense into marriage. But then when you come to the end of the song, you have this situation in chapter 8 where she disappears, he disappears, and she gets all bitter and angry with him. The whole thing is a bit of, a, uh, a, a bit of an anticlimax, really. So reading it as it, it is, putting aside for one moment the possibility of there being some uh, typology in various ways here, you just get the picture of Solomon in this relationship with this girl, this uh, Gentile woman that he should not have been involved with, and the whole thing being very unsatisfactory. That is the impression that I get as I read through this. And I think the whole thing is preserved, as the book of Ecclesiastes is preserved, uh, as an example to us, as a warning to us of what happens when you get involved in relationships that you should not that in the end, although the, uh, it may ha have certain uh, attractions to it, the whole tension of being involved in, in an, a relationship that everybody else is against uh, sort of keeps you together for so long, the bottom line is that it's ultimately unfulfilling and without God's blessing. That's why there's virtually no reference to, to God or to spiritual things throughout the, uh, the whole book. So then, <coughs> she... Uh, has all, all these kind of uh, crises, uh, as I see it. Um, and she says in verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. This is the most common lily I in Israel, and uh, the rose of Sharon was just the, uh, the most common rose. And he tries to comfort her in verse 2, as a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. 
who are the daughters, verse 7, the daughters of Jerusalem. She's all the time caught up with jealousy and fear about these uh, these daughters of Jerusalem, who of course were the, the rightful uh, partners for Solomon. But of course he's involved with her, she's an Egyptian, and there's inevitably all this tension. She wants him to go and live, as she says later, in her mother's house, so that people would stop despising them. Now, you can uh, take all that on the, uh, the typical level as uh, us, considering ourselves just absolute common humanity, what would the Lord see in me? And him saying, as a lily among thorns, so you are to me. And this is one of the difficult things about love on any level. Uh, it's believing it, believing that I am loved, believing that I am seen by the other, in this case uh, Solomon or ultimately God and the Lord Jesus, that I am seen as significant to him and that I as one person amongst the billions that, that have lived on this planet and the billions that are now uh, living on this planet, that I am somehow unique to him. And this, I think, in the end, is the challenge, to believe in the love of God and the love of the Lord Jesus toward us, and that he has some specific intention for us, and that really and truly his righteousness is counted to us, and he is, in, in this metaphor, in love with us. It's very hard to believe when you are aware all the time of your own failure. So perhaps that is the greatest challenge, to believe the good news that I am loved by him. And once the penny drops, then if you really believe that, what others think of you becomes of very little meaning. Because if he loves me, and if I am as a lily among thorns uh, to him, uh, then so what? What do you think of me? This is what Paul says. Um, it means very little that I should be judged by you, he tells the, uh, in fact, the believers in, in Corinth. Now, <clears throat> this contrast, then, um, between uh, the lily and Solomon, her as the lily and Solomon there in all his glory, of course, this is picked up by the Lord Jesus when he says that, look at the lilies of the field, these common lilies, Solomon, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of them. Now that cannot be accidental, but in the Lord's mind he uh, drew this uh, comparison between Solomon in all his glory and a common lily. And he seems to say the common lily is far greater than, than Solomon. And surely he had this in mind, and I think that's one of the many New Testament uh, allusions or hints which presents Solomon rather unfavorably that the lily, this uh, Gentile girl who was involved with Solomon, uh, was seen by the Lord Jesus as infinitely uh, better than Solomon himself. So, <clears throat> verse 3. It's uh, hard to imagine what's actually going on in this part of the woman's speech, because uh, she says... Uh, as the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. She seems to be implying uh, that they had met out in the forest, and he was the, uh, the greatest of the trees. Verse 4, he brought me to the banqueting house. The RV margin says, um, the, uh, 
the place of wine, the wine house, which uh, would rather not be uh, appropriate for some spiritually minded king, apparently. Uh, he brought me to the wine house, to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. And then, uh, so she's imagining herself there in Solomon's palace with him openly and publicly stating that he loves her and not the daughters of Jerusalem. And then, verse 6, she, I I see verse 6, his left hand is under my head, his right hand uh, fondles me. I see that as fairly uh, explicit sexual language that he, she is imagining him with his left hand under her head and his right hand, uh, conveniently archaic, the uh, King James says, embraces me. Well, he's doing that with his left hand. Um, his right hand is uh, fondling her. And so she's got that in her mind. And then verse 7, you daughters of Jerusalem, clear off is what she's saying and then verse 8 oh the voice of my beloved he's coming he's not with me yet but he's coming uh, like a, a, a row leaping upon the mountains he's coming to me now what's going on here I would say that all this is not so much describing anything that actually happened this is her fantasy uh, about him and If we understand this and a number of other passages in what she says as being her fantasy, then it becomes a little bit less confused. Uh, If we try to understand it all literally, that all this literally happened, um, it it, uh, becomes, I think, rather confusing. Now, this, of course, is one of the problems with... Uh, romance that there's all kinds of imaginations that go on and in a wider sense this is a problem I think with all relationships that you think you're in a relationship with somebody who is something but actually that something is your imagination your hope your fantasy of what they shall be and this is not only true of sort of boy girl male female relationships this is true uh, right across the board and then there is the bitterness of disappointment all because of not loving a person for actually as they are. Now, she um, says, uh, say in verse 7, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and by the hinds of the field, that you don't stimulate my love until he please. Um, I think that she's telling them, to, the, the legitimate, uh, as it were, suitors for Solomon to, uh, to get lost. She's continually frightened and, and worried about them. And she talks there, she, she charges them by the rose and by the hinds of the field. And yet in verse 9, she says, my beloved Solomon is like a roe or a young deer. So you could read that as if she's saying, well, Solomon is my young deer who's galloping towards me. You daughters of Jerusalem, you get on with your own, with your own fellows, with your own men, with your own young deers, uh, and just don't stimulate Solomon. Now, in true relationship, in true love, uh, there shouldn't be this fear all the time of losing the beloved. And In a spiritual sense, I think that in our relationship with the Lord Jesus, if all the time we're fearful, as it were, of losing him, that I may offend him, he may find others more attractive to work with than me, I think we're not secure in his love. And this is the 
huge meaning of our being baptized that we are in Christ and that we are secured in him. Okay, verse 9, she likens Solomon to a, a young deer who's running, leaping upon the mountains towards her, and she hears his voice coming to her, and then, verse 9, he's showing himself through the lattice. It's as if he comes to her home, as she's looking out for him through the closed window blinds, and he sort, sort of says, look, it's all clear. Come with me now. Let's dash. See verse 10. My beloved spoke and said to me, rise up, my love, come away. Let's go. And then at the end, verse 17, she, she says to him, look, flee, flee back home. It's daybreak. The sun's arising. Flee back home. And uh, she's in a, a hiding place. Uh, verse, uh, verse 14. He says, oh, my dove, that, uh, that, that is hidden in the hiding place in the rock. Come on. Let's go. So, why all the secrecy? Well, because, of course, Solomon, I guess, demanded that from her, because he had all sorts of other relationships going on at the same time. And it, it, it seems to me that that's all I can say, that there were a series of secret meetings which they had out in the countryside where others couldn't see them they spent the night together it seems out in the mountains in this case uh, and in other parts of the song you, you see them it, it, what would appear to be in, in the vineyards etc together so it's all very secret now of course you could look at it all from the uh, typological point of view about our relationship with the Lord Jesus um, it is very personal just between us and him and yes, we are despised by the world for our relationship with him, and we have these uh, brief meetings with him, uh, etc. Now, verse 10 to verse 13, My beloved spake and said to me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, the winter is past, flowers appear on the earth, etc. Now, that's all reported speech. This is what he said, according to her. And again, I wonder if this is her fantasy about him speaking rather than reality verse 13 the fig tree puts forth her green figs the vines are with the tender grape they're in blossom she sees the blossoming of the fig tree and the vine as suggesting that he is about to come and take her well, there I must admit, one does think of the Olivet Prophecy when the Lord Jesus gives the very same sign about his coming. And we uh, understand the vine and the fig tree to be symbolic of Israel and the, the fruit appearing, the beginning of fruit appearing on, on the fig tree, I would take biblically to refer to spiritual fruit in Israel. Not so much the establishment or re-establishment of Israel as a nation from 1948, um, if that is the, the sign that Jesus is about to come, well, 1948 is uh, quite a way back now, I would say that the real sign that he is about to come is the beginning of spiritual fruit on the fig tree, because that is how uh, fruit on the fig tree and on the vine is used elsewhere in the Bible, in the Old Testament. So I would say that the beginnings of repentance in Israel are the, the biggest sign that the Lord is about to come. And I would suggest that we should uh, really step up all our witness to Israel, all that we can do, uh, to try to bring that about. 
Now, verse 14. You, uh, he says, you who are hidden in the clefts of the rock, let me see your face, let me hear your voice. Well, that is very much the... Uh, the language of Moses, who hid in a cleft of the rock, um, heard God's voice and wanted to see his face. And I wonder if we are to, to take from that that instead of being so fixated on this illicit relationship with this Gentile girl, uh, Solomon instead should have been more like Moses, wanting to see God's face. Now, verse 15 very odd isn't it take us the foxes the little foxes that spoil the vineyards well Kyle and Delich they suggest that that is what they call a vine dresser's ditty that it's a little ditty uh, that was sung by vine dressers it's sort of uh, crying out to the little foxes to stop spoiling the vineyards because the vineyards the vines have got tender grapes verse 15 now that's an odd thing to insert until you understand it I think uh, as a kind of a call for the, the potential observers who are sort of going to spoil their little tryst their little secret meet up to just clear off and go away just like she keeps interjecting you daughters of Jerusalem I charge you <clears throat> we've seen it here in chapter 2 you've got it again in chapter 3 verse 5 um, clear off you daughters of Jerusalem that's um, what I think she's saying all the time this fear of being busted of being rumbled now, <clears throat> they spoil our vineyards, verse 15. Um, just like a, a couple may say, oh yes, that's, uh, that's, our, uh, that's our cafe, that's our, our park, that's our bench in the park where we, we hang out. Uh, it's as if they're the joint uh, vineyard keepers in their, as it were, vineyard where they meet. Now, all these rural uh, allusions, some people have been led to think that this this girl was a uh, a dark-skinned uh, peasant girl uh, you remember she says don't look upon me because my skin is darker than yours it's just because I've been working in my vineyards and you could take it like that in which case from the typological sort of example uh, sort of way of looking at it you'd have Solomon as the Lord Jesus getting involved in this relationship with this girl who doubts herself who is a peasant and you've got this uh, amazing uh, romance then between the king of Israel in all his glory with this dark-skinned peasant girl who was just a vineyard dresser you could take it like that and yet he does call her prince's daughter and I think that uh, she was therefore the, the daughter of Pharaoh and her desire to uh, take Solomon back to her mother's house I think is her desire really to, to go back to her roots and take Solomon with her. But whichever way you want to look at it, the girl, you could argue, really does represent us, we who doubt ourselves. For one thing, whether she was Pharaoh's daughter or whether she was the, the dark-skinned peasant girl that Solomon somehow fell in love with and everyone despised him for it, um, whatever, the girl certainly, you could say, is an appropriate uh, prototype for the, the bride of Jesus, for us, because don't we just have all these doubts about ourselves? And yet all that self-doubt is really a sign that we doubt the extent of his love for us. Now, verse 16, 
My beloved is mine and I am his. Well, yeah, was this girl naive or something? I mean, this guy Solomon was a chronic womanizer. He had at least 1,000 women, as we know, with his wives and concubines put together, plus, you know, plus, plus, you can be pretty sure. Um, and he got involved with many of them, as we know, at the start of his reign. And I think it's pretty well wishful thinking for her to think that uh, I am his, that I am uniquely his. And uh, she says he feeds his flock among the lilies, but she's just said that she is a lily. Uh, at the start of the chapter, so you do wonder whether she's sort of uh, trying to, uh, well, say, oh, my husband, is so, my man is so great, you know, he's he's got all kind of girls, you know, but he also loves me. You could take it that way. Um, or you could take this as just pure wishful thinking. And I think that's why she does get so uh, so angry at the end when she realizes really what's going on. Now, as I've said, so much of this relationship that we see here, this is a, a, a diary, I would say, the Song of Songs, um, of a relationship that ultimately didn't work. Um, <clears throat> so much of the, the problem between them, particularly her problem with him, is because she imagines and fantasizes so much about him. She puts upon Solomon all her ideal kind of hopes and expectations and he simply wasn't the man and as I say this is a problem in all relationships not just with let's say a young couple who get married and then a few weeks after they're married they're coming round sitting round your front room uh, pouring out all their problems with each other and they're nearly always because they thought that the the man or he thought that his wife was going to be like this and it turned out that she isn't like that um, yeah, that is so but I think it's true as I say on all sorts of levels that if you don't accept somebody for who they are but instead you load onto them your hopes and expectations uh, then the whole thing gets ugly pretty quickly it's like you get to know someone quite quickly and, and maybe you think oh this is a wonderful brother, wonderful sister just the one that I was hoping for to uh, give me some comfort in my isolation in life or, or whatever uh, and you put on them all your hopes, ah uh, yeah they're going to be like this, going to be like that and then you know, reality dawns that they are not like that and they are in fact somebody else so this is a, a major problem in relationships of all of all kinds and of course God doesn't treat us like that of course he has his hopes for our development but he loves us as we are and he sees us for who we are uh, and is believe it or not happy with that so then the whole thing fin finishes in this chapter verse 17 um, with the dawn breaking and her saying right okay uh, run away like you're, you've run to me like a, a young deer over the mountains, now flee, uh, run back. Why the language of fleeing? Well, again, there is this element of fear all the time, worried about other people busting them. Run away, flee quickly. Perfect love, as we know from 1 John, perfect love casts out fear. There is not this continual uh, fear of losing, fear of getting busted, fear of unworthiness, uh, fear that I am not good enough for him or for her. 
all this is not of love and yet people think that they're in love like she did um, when in fact they have all these feelings and just as in a relationship these things matured over time I, I suppose the, the final proof of maturity between a, a married couple is total trust uh, so I think that is how it works out between us and God and the Lord Jesus that if we can really believe that we are in Christ and that he loves us and is excited by us and has a hugely positive view of us, then there is no fear. That does not mean that we, we don't feel that we could respond better to his love, but there will not be this fear of final rejection by him at the last day. There will not be this continual nagging concern about our unworthiness before him, this fear that maybe he finds others in the ecclesia or in the body of Christ uh, far better than us and that he's really gung-ho involved in his life or her life but not so much in mine because I'm such a sinner and I'm, I'm so weak and there's uh, habits uh, and habits of thought and practice that I can't seem to kick, etc., etc., the whole challenge of the good news is quite simply that God loves us. Now you might say that that's simplifying it and uh, reducing it to to simpler level. Um, no, because if you really believe that he loves you, that he has counted the righteousness of the Lord Jesus to you, that you stand uh, without spot in his sight, as Ephesians and Jude make clear that that is how he sees us now, it is how he will see us at the last day. Uh, if you can really believe that, then all this nagging fear that I shall be rejected, that he will reject me, that I am not up to scratch, etc., all this just goes away. I mean, I don't have that uh, feeling about Cindy, how she looks at me, even though I am overweight and even though I am middle-aged and I am not the, the young uh, the young deer the young stag that that I once was maybe um, to somebody uh, that, that, that's not an item I, I don't fear that she might reject me um, that there is some future day when she will say no nope, you didn't make the grade and so it is far more so in our relationship with God and with his son and, as I say, to say, oh, the simplest expression of the gospel is that God loves you, people would, some people would uh, shrug at that and say, oh, yeah, no, that's just simplifying it all. Well, when you really think about it from this point of view, it's uh, not a simplification at all. That is, in fact, the very kernel of the gospel. And yet we have such a problem in believing it. Why the Lord Jesus died in the very public, painful way that he did is, of course, um, multifactorial. Um, There's a number of different reasons. Uh, but one of them is, as Paul says, God commends his love to us in that whilst we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And one reason why he died as he did, why the cross was necessary, was to persuade us in our dumbness and slowness of heart to believe that, yes, this is all gloriously true, and he does love me to that extent. <laughs>